Hi, and uh, welcome to the Anatomy Cupboard, a new podcast that recounts the tales around the historical study of the anatomy of the human body. Let's face it, this is the backstory to the examination of corpses, their nefarious acquisition and all of the ghoulish stories in between of the power and stature of some of the most flamboyant anatomists who, over the years, appeared more as ringmasters of the macabre than as cutting-edge scientists. No one looking at Michelangelo's statue of David fails to notice that the right hand has been sculpted far too big for the body. The hand is now empty, making it seem somehow even larger where soon before it held a stone that lodged firmly in Goliath's frontal lobe and which took him out. Perhaps David really needed his own gigantic mega-fist to succeed and maybe Michelangelo was just making an anatomical point. If you walk a little further away from the Academia where these days the real David is housed, there being a copy in the Piazza della Signoria in the Florence, exposed to the elements. You can see another anatomical curiosity in the baptistry building adjacent to the huge Duomo. Looking up at the cupola of that baptistry is a large mosaic dominated by an image of Jesus Christ, his right hand leisurely pointing heavenwards and the left one, the sinister one, pointing downward to the condemned. Now there's clearly something pretty abnormal about that left hand. It's twisted on the wrist, makes the saviour look like a comical marionette. And it too is an aberrant accident of anatomy just next door, even if, to be generous, it's likely 13th century artist Jacobus meant to include that twist in the fate of all sinners. I don't know. But what I do know is that anatomy loses some of its power without art and vice versa. There's a special bond, a covenant, you might say, between the two that means the one cannot fruitfully advance without the other. The artist would be nowhere without an apprenticeship at the feet of the live model, and the anatomists plying their trade of dissection of the human corpse would struggle without an impression in their mind of the visual relationship of one structure to another. Now, it was not always like that. When the notion of dissection was invented, so to speak, by the Greek physician Galen, in about a hundred Anno Domini, what the master wrote about anatomy was considered its own form of gospel. Even if Claudius Galen had never dissected in his life a single human being, preferring to vivisect and section almost every animal he could find, and inferring from that the comparative human anatomy. The man in his anatomical writings was prolific, given what has come down to us a million or so words and fully one-tenth of ancient Greek writings and about a third of all medical Greek writing. It's only a fraction of what he wrote, uh, as a lot of it sitting in the Temple of uh, Peace was destroyed in a fire in 192 AD. Think of it, though. 
The man was actually followed around every day by 20 or so scribes whose job it was to document his every utterance. It's a bit like James Boswell running constantly after Samuel Johnson and copying down every quote. Not so much pretentious, I suppose, as necessary. And from there, for a good one and a half millennia, Galen's word on all things anatomical was law. There was simply no need to question it by bothering to dissect a, a cadaver, have a peek inside and confirm or refute what was being taught. To be fair to Galen, though, Roman law forbade the dissection of human beings, and the only opportunity poor old Galen would have had to see the insides of one was when he accompanied his boss, as he was the personal physician to the Emperor Marcus Aurelius, and saw a decent sword or trident wound to one of his gladiators at the Colosseum. I don't know outside of that quite how curious Galen was, or quite how daring, but it's fairly true to say that after Galen, and after the Antonine Plague, which was killing about 2,000 people a day at its height in Rome, anatomy through dissection of human bodies disappeared off the map. It wasn't resurrected, if you uh, will forgive the allusion to the raising of the dead, until a rather obscure anatomist from Bologna, one Mondino de Liuzzi, started it again in the 13th century as a method of teaching his medical students. Now, Bologna, which is a very nice city, I must say, and home to some of the uh, finest cured meats in Italy, is a logical place for anatomy to resurrect. It boasts Europe's oldest university for a start, which grew up in 1222, predominantly as a law faculty, branching out its medical faculty just before Mondino, or as he preferred the Latin cognomen of Mundinus, was born. Now, the important thing Mundinus did was to start the public dissections of cadavers, but even more importantly, it's how he did it that matters. To show the anatomy of the body best, he needed to dismember it, and this was in direct violation to an edict in 1299 by the then Pope Boniface VIII, who'd taken particular offence to the process occurring on the battlefields of the Crusades, where knights of honour who had fallen were chopped up into quarters and the pieces then boiled so that the flesh could be stripped off the bones and the bones transported from the Holy Land back to Europe. Old Boniface thought this was an appalling practice, particularly to a Catholic, and he released a papal bull or edict that threatened anyone fiddling around with bodies with excommunication. Never mind that this quartering and boiling was largely how the bodies of royalty and anyone considered a saint for that matter was routinely treated after death. It was also a thriving trade in holy relics that the friars established and whose profit margin Boniface wished to interfere with. For interest, uh, the quartering and boiling bit was how King John's body was treated and also Richard the Lionheart, who in life had requested uh, that his heart should be removed and buried at Rouen next to his grandfather, don't forget these guys were kings of France first in their minds before England, and then that his brain, the entrails and some of his blood should be interred at Cheroux, and the remainder of his carcass deposited alongside his mother at Fontevraud. Division and transport of a preserved corpse of a nobleman 
king or someone considered in their lifetime to have been a saint became so common in Germany, the process was referred to as the Mos Teutonicus. And although it never happened, after Edward I died, it was proposed that his heart be carried at the head of every English army until their mortal enemy, Scotland, was vanquished, and that after that victory, 140 knights should then bear it for burial to the Holy Land. Uh, now, let's be honest, I'm getting a bit off track. Uh, where were we? Now remember uh, Mandinus in Bologna, he was the one setting up a manual, his 1316 Anatomische, which was uh, a how-to guide for dismantling a corpse. Actually ignoring Pope Boniface, Mandinus also described how anatomy, which was largely Galen's anatomy, should be taught. At the head of the class was the professor sitting on high at his lectern, what was called ex-cathedra, for rather obvious reasons, and he would read aloud to his adoring students from one of these canonical textbooks. Below him was then a surgeon who some might later call a demonstrator, whose job it was to actually cut into a corpse. And then there was a third man who was called the ostensor, whose role was to use a pointer, and point out where the professor's word corresponded with the surgeon's finding. A little bit like a mortuary attendant nowadays. Now all of this seems pretty practical, but it relies on a perfected sense of identification, if you will. There could be no room for variations, no deviations from the normal anatomy, and what could be seen or found needed to equate precisely with the verbatim word of the textbook. This was anatomy as an auditory discipline. Indeed, if you think about it, there would almost have been no need for a cadaver at all. The medieval Mandinus could just as simply have blathered on about anatomy like one of the first Byzantine podcasts. To some extent, we're trying to reverse the idea of this as a visual discipline back to an auditory podcast again, so a bit Byzantine myself. It wasn't really until the mid-1500s that a Belgian anatomist, Andreas Vesalius, under the instruction of his mentor, a German guy called Gunther of Andernach, who directed him to examine corpses in order to notate all of Galen's findings, that things dramatically changed. Gunther's faculty at the University of Paris had only recently acquired a shiny new version in Latin of all of Galen's works and Gunther was looking for a project for his pupils. It was, by the way, a time where those like Gunther, who were the teachers of anatomy, were only there because of their fluency in Latin and ancient Greek, as well as a smattering of Hebrew and Persian. The latter was particularly useful in interpreting the great Arabic texts that had made their way into France and Italy after the fall of Constantinople 
1453. There was, in fact, before then a golden age of Islam lying somewhere between the 8th and the 13th centuries, and which housed the 9th century masterpiece, the Arabian Nights and the Tales of the Great Caliph Harun al-Rashid. All of medicine in that era was sitting in the libraries of Constantinople or Cordoba and basically transferred, particularly to Italy, for translation into Latin and ultimately the vernacular Italian. Now, old Gunther recognised that despite being a teacher of anatomy, he himself wasn't the greatest dissector. His own pupil, Vesalius, often said that the only skill Gunther wielded with a knife was at the dinner table. And another boss, a man known as Jacobus Silvius, or more correctly Jacques Dubois, was one of the few people in Paris at the time who'd ever actually personally opened up a corpse. Now, just as a side here, as an aside, uh, Dubois, or Silvius as he preferred, was a trained philosopher, also schooled in Latin and Hebrew, who only moved to the study of medicine in his 50s. So my point is that the Faculty of Anatomy in 16th century Paris wasn't particularly renowned for its skilful anatomists. It was into this environment that Vesalius soon became the most precise and exact dissector in the city, and he developed such a following that he decided that in order to teach anatomy at all, the professor needed to descend from their lectern and dissect the cadaver for themselves. Not throw away the books exactly, but consult them as needed from the open body, as it were. And in one simple move, Vesalius had become the professor, the demonstrator and the ostensor, all rolled into one. Now, this was pretty revolutionary, and it turned Vesalius almost instantly into a cult figure. When he went to Bologna to dissect cadavers in the open air at San Francesco Church, a German student, Baldassar Hessler, who had studied theology under Martin Luther, wrote that it was the most impressive thing he'd ever seen. But the move by Vesalius to dissect cadavers himself rather than rely on Galen's hallowed text, did two other revolutionary things in the process. Firstly, it democratised the subject of anatomy itself. Vesalius encouraged all of his pupils to get down into the pit, to roll their sleeves up and start digging into bodies themselves. Now, literally anyone with a willing heart and nimble fingers could do and see human anatomy for themselves. But secondly, in a manner which reinforced this democratisation of anatomy, the methodology of teaching converted the study of anatomy from that auditory experience about which I've spoken into a visual enterprise. Now that all might sound a bit theoretical, but it was a hell of an idea. To teach and to learn, you had to do it yourself, that is, to dissect bodies yourself, and to explain what you found by demonstration. Vesalius had just changed Mundinus's podcast into a YouTube channel. He didn't settle on that alone, of course, and what he did was to write his own manual of anatomical dissection in a book which became a European sensation, the Fabrica Humani Corporis, or the Fabric of the Human Body. And in this book, which was published in 1543 in Basel, Switzerland, by Johannes Operinus, Vesalius had invited a local Venetian artist, Jan Stefan van Kalker, to support the book 
with a series of masterful etching illustrations that were soon copied and plagiarised for distribution throughout Europe. Vesalius was a ponderous writer. The text, although important, playing second fiddle to Van Kalka's evocative imagery, and if truth be known, the pictures became far more iconic than the written facts contained therein. We actually know very little of Van Kalka except that he was a favoured pupil of the great Venetian master Tiziano Bicelli, Titian to you and me. And there are several art historians who, having seen Van Kalka's prior work, have suggested that Titian himself might have illustrated Vesalius's Fabrica, since it's unlikely that Van Kalka could have undergone such maturation of his style in such a short time. Here's one perfectly executed image, for example, of a skeleton contemplating the skull of another in the book, an image that was thought to have inspired Shakespeare to have his protagonist, Prince Hamlet, lament the loss of his courtier, the hapless Yorick, after coming across his exhumed skull uh, in the play at a local graveyard. I don't know if all of that's true, but I certainly wish it was. Another of Van Kalka's pictures sees the skeleton of a cadaver strung upright by a grappling hook and ropes that have been slung around the cheekbones in a manner which Vesalius described in detail and which was used by Renaissance dissectors to haul cadavers from pits onto the dissecting tables. We need no more reinforcement of the significance of Vesalius's work than to know that the year he published The Fabrica was the same year Nicholas Copernicus published his radical theory that the Earth rotated around the Sun rather than the other way around. integral part in the description of anatomy. It seems almost inconceivable that up until that time there had been almost no need for anatomic illustration. Afterwards, from this watershed line, however, artist and anatomist were bedfellows, sharing the corporeal territory of the cadaver. And in that territorial description, the anatomist engaged with the body through dissection much as any explorer or navigator thought of the undiscovered terra incognita in their discoveries of distant lands and new worlds. We don't think of these anatomists in the same way that we might think of the explorers, uh, the Drakes, the Columbuses or the Magellans. But the task and the zeal of discovery was similar, even if each was discovering something that was already there. Anatomy was equally as revelatory. That connection between artist and anatomist lasted at least up until the finite limits of anatomical discovery, the definition of the macroscopic or visible, what anatomists call the gross anatomy, was defined. After that, artist and anatomist naturally drifted apart, the intricacies of the microscopic world drawn more by competent draftsmen rather than by great painters in their own right. Before that, however, anatomy and the, set, the dissecting halls had attracted some great artists, uh, and in such extraordinary works, the anatomy 
lesson of uh, Dr. Nicholas Taub, the anatomy lesson of Dr. Jan Diamond, one of the truly great artists, Rembrandt van Rijn. In this endeavour to show the anatomy through art, it's fair to say that although there was common territory, that the imperatives of anatomist and artist differed. The anatomist striving for a perfected accuracy was mostly the director of a willing artist whose task was to display that precision and to create a sense of verisimilitude, but who more often than not could not contain their natural tendency towards some sort of individualistic expression and artistic licence. For artist and anatomist alike, the cadaver may have been the shared common ground, but it was also, by its very nature, a place of conflict. When Rembrandt's favourite pupil, Gerard de la Resse, collaborated with the irascible surgeon, Gauvert Bidlou, who was the rector of Leiden University and also the librettist for the Amsterdam Opera Company, Delores drew the most accurate images of the open abdomen, but was unable to resist the temptation of drawing a housefly that had nestled onto the rotting carcass. For Bidlou, this sort of impudence was intolerable, and they never worked together again, even though Delores's images are some of the most beautiful, if one can safely use that word, ever produced of a dissection. Equally, when William Hunter, 18th century London's most renowned man midwife, invited the painter Jan van Rimsdijk to draw an unborn fetus nestled in the uterus of a pregnant woman who'd died in the late stages of pregnancy, the artist impudently drew a sharp outline of the ceiling window of the dissecting hall, reflected onto the amniotic membrane overlying the baby's head. Hunter, in the preface to his great book published in 1774, The Human Gravid Uterus, as it was called, which described the growth of the foetus from conception to birth and which outlined in detail the dissections of 14 women who over a 25-year period had all mysteriously died in the latter stages of pregnancy and then been delivered to the Covent Garden dissecting rooms of the Hunter brothers the elder William notating the uterine changes and the younger John doing the dissecting. Van Rimstick was fortuitously on hand to lovingly draw all of these women in a fine red chalk, their uteruses opened up like oranges. Each subject was faceless and anonymous, her legs separated and amputated mid-thigh, the external genitalia sliced off and not represented at all. For William Hunter, pregnancy was an anatomical matter, a mechanical process, his subjects generic, and not only anonymised and degenitalised, if you will, but also their greatest sacrifice unacknowledged in the preface of his grand book. They were but mere vehicles for delivery and stepping stones for his personal fame. Maybe that went a little bit far. formally talk about that synchrony between art and anatomy in a later podcast. 
Although it's a thread of that accord, that compact between both that will run through many of the stories that I wish to tell. After all, the frescoes adorning the walls of the world's churches are a visual reminder to the illiterate masses of the stories of the Gospels. It would seem that we could regard anatomical illustrations in a similar light, where perhaps they were more privately appreciated by a far more educated audience. In the early 15th century, the Dominican friar of Florence, Antonino Pierozzi, later Saint Antoninus, lamented that in the Middle Ages the Byzantine paintings of people were so stilted that they could not possibly evoke a devotion to God. Such was a theologian's impetus to stimulate an artistic renaissance where a perfected anatomic realism in representing the human body was then for painters almost a moral and indeed a religious obligation. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.